0: podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments will fluctuate which will cause prices to fall as well as rise and investors may not get back the original amount they invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information and views expressed should not be taken as a recommendation, advice or forecast.
1: Buenos días everybody. Uh, my name is Jose Pellicer, and I'm the global head of investment strategy real estate at MNG Investments. Welcome to episode 1 of the MNG Investment Podcast which will focus on the real estate sector. In this episode we will cover the usual narratives about 2021 and how much reality is there about the hope for a better year. The last. We also cover the eternal Brexit topic and we will also cover other narratives within the real estate sector. Is this the end of offices as we know them? Is retail doomed forever? And are opportunities in the industrial sector um, the best on a risk-adjusted basis? In order to cover these topics, I have with me Tony Brown, who is the Global Head of Real Estate at M&G. Um, and also, I have Richard William. Richard is the Head of Research Real Estate at m g So, welcome, Tony and Rich. Hi, Jose. Hi, Jose. Hi, everyone. Okay, so let's go to the first narrative which is about the recovery in 2021. So 2021 started with a new outbreak of the virus that has spread pretty much globally uh, which probably will follow uh, with another period of economic pain Um, but we have a vaccine, we actually have three of them with a number of them um, in the pipeline Um, And therefore, the usual narrative on this is that by the end of the year, by, you know, a period in which enough people have been vaccinated, um, there's no reason why economic activity and real estate activity shouldn't go back to the levels in 2019. So, Rich, to what extent do you think this is the case?
0: Thanks, Jose. Um look, undoubtedly there is some good news coming from, from the vaccine, but I think it's probably premature to to pop the champagne at, at the moment. Um I think we have to be aware that the vaccine is not a panacea that will just simply return us to where we left off a year ago. Uh, There are risks that that remain. There will still be near-term weakness. I mean, for a start, we've got to get through these lockdowns first. Uh, We're sat here in in the UK talking about this. We're we're in the midst of of a lockdown here. There are lockdowns in other parts of the world, and as we know from last year lockdowns and the restrictions, the suppression of economic activity is clearly very damaging to the economy. More job losses uh, are on the cards. More business failures are are on the cards. The accumulation of debt is on the cards. Uh, Then there are uh, risks around the the vaccine itself and how successful it it will be. It will take time to roll it out. It will take time for sufficient numbers of people to be inoculated, enabling authorities to to ease restrictions. What about anti-vaxxers who refuse to be vaccinated? Uh, And how long does immunity last? What about mutations and further strains emerging that maybe the vaccines won't be effective on on future new strains? And then there's the the economic ramifications. So the savings ratio has soared during the pandemic, and, and people have effectively been building their wealth rather than spending it. But more and more people will have reduced income. And so they won't be able to spend money because they simply won't have money coming in. So there's a lot of concern out there. Yes, it's great news that we can kind of look forward to in due course. But there's some pretty tough times we've got to undergo first.
1: Yeah, exactly. And do you feel also that there are risks um, for unemployment? So, clearly, a part part of the corporate sector is pretty bruised at the moment, no? Um, you know, the retail sector, the hospitality sector. So, do you see unemployment down the line? Uh, unemployment has already
0: increased. I, I think it is pretty likely it will increase further. Um, I I mean, the the government policies, generally speaking, have helped keep the the unemployment rates down or or not rising as much. So there's been job support schemes, furlough schemes, the support of of businesses more generally. That that has certainly helped to bridge the gap to the end of the the pandemic. Uh, But that in its own right raises two questions – how long is that support going to be provided for? Uh, it's going to be tapering off at some point and, and stopping ultimately. And secondly, what's the implication for public sector finances? There's been a huge amount of, of debt that, that's been put onto to the balance sheets of central banks and, and governments. Uh, that, that will have long-lasting consequences.
1: Yeah, no, I, I I think that's right. But nevertheless, I think it does make sense that public sectors, uh, keep pouring money into the economies, because the lessons from the global financial crisis is that when the tap is cut too quickly, then you get rises in populism and you get, you know, second um, aftershocks of the crisis, like the Euro crisis, etc. Now, Tony, and how about the real estate industry? Um, taking into account what Rich has said, do you feel that um he's a little bit too pessimistic and what do you think the consequences for real estate are?
2: Thanks, Jose. I mean, I think you know, as human beings, we're all conditioned to react to the circumstances we find ourselves in. I'm actually sitting in my home in London right now and I haven't been into our office in London you know for uh, you know for nearly nine months. Um, so you kind of react to those circumstances that you're in, uh, and in reality, in many real estate markets around the world, there's a there's a need to focus on the basics, such as you know rent collection and, and tenant relationships, and and just dealing with the physical limitations on travel and be able to go and uh, and look at assets either to underwrite them, DD them uh, or to manage them. So that's the reality that a lot of people are currently um, finding themselves in. But I think it's also important to you know to understand that real estate is generally a long-term asset class certainly compared to a number of other asset classes so being a long-term investment it's really important to look through the reality of today and consider the structural and cyclical impacts um, that covid um, will have and also look beyond covid you know once it's behind us my expectation is that you know whereas the you know the last decade was characterized by you know, the phrase rising tide floats all boats. You know, in reality, so all real estate performed well, you know, in the last decade pretty much. Um, but I think, you know, in 2021 and going forward, we'll see a much greater dispersion of returns from real estate, both by sector, by country and by risk profile, you know, with a much wider range of winners and losers starting to emerge during this calendar year. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I I think it's totally true. I think that um, equally, in the same way as after the global financial crisis, parts of the real estate market recovered very quickly, like, you know, central London and, you know, the big gateway cities, others took a bit longer. And actually, you know, talking about contrasting parts of the real estate sector, I would like to move to the second narrative um, pretty swiftly, which is about the fortunes, the respective fortunes of the retail and the industrial sector. So the narrative is generally as follows. So e-commerce is rising inexorably, retailers were slow to adapt, and the population ec- um, expanded by the pandemic has grown even more accustomed to shop Online, So retail as a real estate sector has a green future and industrial is the big winner, particularly, you know, this um, particular name, the last mile logistics is the number one winner from this pandemic and has been the winner from the last 10 years. So I'm going to start with Tony now. The retail sector is retail doomed. Well,
2: I think it's certainly true to say that um, retail generally in most markets around the world has um, limited investment demand or certainly less investment demand and other asset classes such as logistics and you need right to identify that but i think we have to be quite careful in in assessing um, what this means longer term because there are quite big differences um, between um, countries and types of retail you know for example in southeast asia you know, in a country in cities such as singapore uh, or even in tokyo as an example suburban convenience shopping centers really provide um, a community service almost because people live you know, in quite small apartments, um, certainly in the tropics where it's obviously hot all year round, a lot of apartments don't have air conditioning. And so families actually go and meet in the, in the relative comfort of an air-conditioned shopping centre to eat and, and to, um, to enjoy their leisure time together. And certainly our experience in Singapore, for example, is even during this last 12 months of the pandemic, we've seen pretty robust levels of footfall in those types of suburban convenience locations. And then contrast us to a country like Germany, a lot of retail in Germany is anchored by food stores. And there we haven't seen um, rents rise significantly over the last 15 years. So rents are still relatively affordable. Um, and therefore, that type of retail model is likely to be more robust going forward than, say, in the UK shopping centre market, where the model is really dominated by um, department stores anchoring those locations and the department store model is probably the most challenged by the prevalence of online retailing so there are quite big differences you know when you travel around the world in terms of retail and i think it's really important to understand those differences when thinking about what the future of retail investment looks like
1: yeah that makes a lot of sense i think that in in the convenience certainly has a future um, it's the very prime retail that um, I, I think there is a question mark. I think that we might be suffering from a little bit of present bias because the shopping centres are closed. Um, but I think that there is a big question mark about the big prime shopping centres um, hosting 120 shops or something like that. I think that's a trend that we should watch. Moving into industrial rich. It's the big winner, so it's all industrial good. Well, it, it, I mean, there are certainly
0: a lot of good reasons to believe that industrials, generally speaking, uh, will continue to do well. And, you know, let, let's be frank here. If you've been on on the industrial or logistics train for the last few years, you've had a pretty good ride. It's pretty, been a, a healthy, uh, fun journey to have been on. The, the Tony's phrase earlier about rising tides, floating all boats. I think, generally speaking, pretty much all industrial has this ridden. This is
1: brilliant. I've got no idea what that expression means. <laughs> but anyway. (laughs) Moving on.
0: (laughs) So the the market has risen pretty much all assets within industrial. Um, Now, I I think this is where I'm going to inject a a dose of reality and maybe concern and pause for thought. I I think it is dangerous thinking to assume that going forward, any old industrial will do well just by virtue of being the the sort of the right property type. So e-commerce is clearly a big driver. But it's not everything. Uh, many industrial assets are let to tenants which have nothing to do with e-commerce. And those types of tenants are suffering by being in a really weak economy at the moment. Um, some distribution warehouses, logistics assets are let to retailers with e- for e-commerce purposes. But many retailers, as we all know, have been going bust. Just because they engage in e-tailing doesn't mean that they will thrive as a business so I think we need to ask ourselves when thinking about assets, industrial assets that, that we, we own or potentially want to, to buy, how secure is the income? What is the risk of vacancy and what is the likelihood of reletting a particular property if it's old, poor spec, ill-suited for modern occupational requirements – is it in the wrong location? What about ESG characteristics of that asset? So, in, I think investors need to focus on which are going to be the right industrial assets, which tick the boxes that that we that we believe will be important going forward, not just necessarily historically, but going forward. Uh, so, I mean, logistics markets in good proximity to end consumers. That have low availability of space, such as you know London and the southeast in the UK, or big urban centres more more generally. I think they will be the biggest winners. Um, and and with that in mind, actually, we're likely to see this trend towards increasing di- densification. Uh, the, the phrase was used earlier: last mile, uh, urban logistics, and last mile. I think that that is likely to continue being a relatively big winner in in the years to come. And actually, that could lead to multi-storey logistics warehouses, which which have been seen in some markets, notably in Asia. They will probably become more commonplace in the UK and, and Europe too.
1: Yeah, I think I, I think that makes sense. And also, there is the other point about the pricing. Um, you know, the 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 level of rents and the yields at which it re- industrial has reached sometimes it's eye watering, and if the tenant is one of those bruised um, companies in a bruised sector, that might entail um, a number of risks as well. Anyway, so let's move on to the next narrative, which is the end of offices. And the narrative goes like this. Um, Technology works. We have gotten used to working remotely. Companies are awash with debt and need to cut costs. And a good way of cutting costs is to have employees work from home three days a week and reduce their office space needs by 40%. Do you think that offices are doomed because tenants are not going to need, going to need offices 10 years from now? Rich, what do you think? Well, I think that there, there is a fairly high chance that
0: you know, ten to fifteen years from now we'll be saying things similar to what's been said about retail in recent years, uh, along the lines of we simply got too much office space. Um, but I, I think it's really important to note here that there will be winners and losers. um so in 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 their approach to occupying offices, businesses will effectively have less people using more space. So it's all about trying to identify those office assets that will continue to attract offices going forward. Um, I mean, I, I think we, we have to acknowledge that there there are the sorts of features that occupiers will be after. They they will be different going forward to what we were kind of used to uh, to feeling as as being attractive features in the pre-pandemic era. So I don't think we're going to be um, emerging from the pandemic and simply going back to where we were where before um, where we left off. Um, the uh, th- what what attracts employees and occupiers more generally to to go into an office to work is going to be different in the future compared to previously. Um, I mean a a lot of different aspects feature, uh, factor into this so where where do you live if you're if you're living in a relatively cramped high-rise apartment which is commonplace in in many asian cities for instance well that doesn't really lend itself to being an attractive place to work in compared to some european cities for instance where flatter living and gardens are, are more common mm-hmm. Um, There are also differences in in cultural uh, phenomena to to do with, say, presenteeism. Um, It's more prevalent that that people feel they have to show their face in the office compared in some countries or or markets, take Japan or Germany, for instance, um, compared to other markets. But but at the same time, we need to be careful not to overstate that. Um, I think big changes are still likely to occur in those, those markets, too. Um, but, you know, the, the pandemic will pass, uh, but part of its legacy will be flexible working. Now, flexible working was certainly a trend that was growing pre-pandemic. The, the pandemic has massively accelerated that trend. And I think post-pandemic, the uh, sort of the average going into the office type of frequency will be maybe two or three days a week for for, mm-hmm. for most people. Um, now, that raises another question. If, if employees aren't in the office for, for those days that, that they're not there, then basically the office isn't needed. So flexible working means that this new normal uh, around going into the office means that offices need to provide what the home can't. So successful offices, therefore, will be those that best enable interaction, collaboration, fostering of relationships, in, in, uh, in innovation and productivity. So office uh, assets, office buildings need to be able to provide amenities, uh, collaboration space, uh, the, the ability to network and have that physical interaction, facilitating meetings, rather than simply providing a, a, a desk to sit behind.
1: Yeah, exactly. I don't think I have anything to add. I would just say, as we say in Spain, amen, because... Um, it's important to take into account all these other variables, density, culture, and type of activity that's done in the office to um, understand this topic in a more nuanced way. So I'm going to move to the last narrative now, which is inevitably about Brexit. I would like to ask you, Tony, we now have a Brexit deal, Um, The Brexit deal, the usual narrative is now there is more clarity. So the UK should stop being the laggard um, relative to continental Europe that it has been in the last five years. Do you think that narrative has merit, Tony?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think... If you look at pricing, uh, I mean, it all comes down to pricing ultimately in, in all asset classes all the time. If you look at pricing, there's a crossover in yields, say, for example, we've seen London office yields and major European capital office yields in 2016. And that really coincided with the with the EU referendum in the UK. And since that point, we've seen um, a, a large differential in pricing between, um, say, London offices and, and Paris offices. You know, the yield differential currently is probably around 200 basis points, which um, you know, is much more significant than I can ever remember. Actually, during during my career, to be honest with you, and a lot of that is because of the uncertainty that was caused through the Brexit negotiations. But as we all know, that's um, behind us now. And, and therefore, my expectation is that we'll start to see on a relative value basis a lot more interest in um, UK real estate and particularly London London office market as a major international um, centre for cross-border capital because the arbitrage that exists in yield is probably too great given the underlying economic um, uh, circumstances of the relative countries around Europe being not that dissimilar to each other. And, and so, therefore, to my mind, the one of the biggest opportunities over the next couple of years is probably going to be start to be seeing taking some risk in the London office market. You know we'll see we're in a risk-off environment currently um, but sometimes when everyone's looking left it pays to look right and at some point we'll transfer from a risk-off environment to more of a risk-on environment um, and it's worth thinking about London and the London office market in relation to when that crossover occurs.
1: Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree. It is hard to justify why the yield in London is so much higher than in other, in Frankfurt, Paris, Amsterdam and other cities. Anyway, I think this is, has been a fascinating discussion. So, Rich, Tony, thank you. Thanks, Jose. Thank you, everyone. This
0: podcast is for investment professionals only. For further information, please view the
1: notes which accompany this episode.